I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I just wanted to encourage you all to watch some of my IG Live videos on Instagram. On Instagram, my accounts are at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. But in case I haven't told you, which it occurred to me that maybe I haven't, on Instagram every day at 11 o'clock Eastern time, I interview authors live from my at Zibby Owens account. And to watch it, you just have to open up Instagram. And if you're following me when I'm live, it'll show up on the upper left of your screen in the story section and it'll say live and there'll be a little red circle. So every day, Monday to Friday, I do an IG live show check it out. I do one to four authors a week. Sometimes the shows become these podcasts. And I also do one on Sundays at two with my husband, Kyle. um, And we talk about step parenting and life and all the rest. So if you haven't watched an IG Live, please do. And also I have a virtual book club that I hope you know about. This is all on my website, by the way, zibbyowens.com. But check out my virtual book club, which is through a site called Book Clubs, with a Z, B-O-O-K-C-L-U-B-Z.com. And no, I didn't make that up after my name, but actually it just worked out perfectly. So go to bookclubs.com, and I'm actually the featured book club on their homepage. So you can just click, and you're invited to sign up. Um, I have amazing guests every week, and that meets Tuesdays at 2 p.m., Uh, Eastern Time via Zoom. So please don't miss out on all these other offerings for all of you guys who are loyal listeners to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And always feel free to check out my website at zibbyowens.com to find out what I'm up to and what else you can do. Oh, and also sign up for my newsletter. On In my newsletter every week, I give updates on the latest, the book recommendations, all my podcasts, all my IG lives, my book club, and any other fun information, um, plus usually some list or article or something that I think would be helpful. So um, also sign up for my mailing list if you get a chance. Okay, that's enough for me. Now go listen to this episode. Today's sponsor is Violets Are Blue, which is an organic small batch skincare company that gives back to women in treatment for breast cancer, started by a breast cancer survivor herself. 10% of the Violets Are Blue earnings go toward skincare packages that they donated to women on their first day of treatment at Mount Sinai in New York City. For 20% off, use code ZIBBY. 20, Z-I-B-B-Y 20. Victoria James is the author of Wine Girl, The Obstacles, Humiliations, and Triumphs of America's Youngest Sommelier. Victoria has worked in restaurants since she was 13 and was certified as a sommelier when she was 21. She was Food and Wine Sommelier of the Year in 2018 and has appeared on both Forbes and Zagat's 30 Under 30 lists. She's worked at some of the most prestigious restaurants in New York City, including Maria and Oriole. Currently, she's a partner and beverage director at Cote, or maybe Cote, of Michelin-starred Hotspot in the Flatiron District of New York City and is co-founder of Wine Empowered, a 501c3 nonprofit that aims to diversify the hospitality industry by offering tuition-free wine classes to women and minorities. She is also the author of Drink Pink, The Celebration of Rosé, which Harper Design published in 2017. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Hi, Zibby. Uh, so who is this? Wait, I know who this is because you thanked your husband for taking care of him. So what's his, this, what's this guy's name? This is Rocco. <laughs> Hi, Rocco. Look at you with like the old-fashioned fire and the dog and the stones. <laughs> yeah, we're at a place upstate just for the, you know, this bit of quarantine to try and take a deep breath from Manhattan. Yes, I understand that. Now one of my first things on my to-do list, if and when I ever get back to the city, is going to your restaurant. <laughs> I'll be there. I have so many questions and things I want to talk to you about 
regarding the book. But I just want to start because obviously the restaurant industry has been hit so hard by COVID-19. So I wanted to just get your point of view on that because I haven't talked to that many people in the restaurant industry. How are you coping and what are your sort of general thoughts? Sorry to put you on the spot here, but no, not at all. Yeah. So first and foremost, it's really important if you know anyone watching is able to do so to please support their local restaurants that are doing delivery or takeout right now. In addition, you can buy gift cards. I know a lot of restaurants have started sort of a GoFundMe for their staff. They had to furlough or, or lay off for the time being at our restaurant, which is a Coke Korean Steakhouse in New York City. We are a skeleton crew now. We're doing takeout and delivery. It's very intense. But we do this in order to be able to send weekly stipend to the staff members we had to lay off and to be able to keep them afloat during these times. So it's definitely not what we imagined our restaurant would look like. All the booths and, you know, tables that used to host all these fabulous guests are now filled with takeout containers <laughs> and, and such. So, but no complaints. We are so grateful that we're beyond surviving. It's, it's really, really wonderful. Not a lot of our friends have that opportunity. Um, I just never envisioned a world in which like every restaurant would, would simultaneously close or it's just, it's, it's really unthinkable. Like I want to, somebody must have written a book imagining this because everybody has their own fears, but I have to like go find that book, but I haven't yet. <laughs> yeah. It makes one also realize how important restaurants are to our community and culture. You know, they're a place we go to celebrate special events, to uh, feel restored, um, to have that sense of kinship and friendship. And without it, it's not the same. <laughs> it's not. It's, you're absolutely right. It's very sad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So your book was so good. I, I mean, I just emailed you. I was like, oh my gosh. I even emailed your agent. I was like, oh my gosh, this book is so good. Which I've, and I've had it since I could, it first came out. I got it through um, bookshop.org. And so it's been sitting here and now I feel terrible. I haven't read it yet. It was on my list all along, but I'm so glad I got the chance to finally read it because it's really one of my recent favorites. So can you tell everybody how you decided to write this memoir and basically the journey that you describe in it, what's, what it's about. Yeah, so the book is sort of my coming-of-age story, starting, and hi, Allison, my understanding, <laughs> my age is amazing. And so Allison can attest, you know, I first met Allison Pye around five years ago, and I said, you know, I have this idea of to, to write this book about my coming-of-age story in the wine world. And, you know, at the time, it wasn't quite it wasn't quite right. The Me Too movement hadn't happened yet. And, you know, so I continued to work on the book and it sort of chronicles my journey from 13-year-old Greasy Spoon diner waitress to bartender um, and then working and falling in love with wine. But feeling as if I was too young, for sure. I was 19. <laughs> Definitely too poor. I didn't come from a lot of money and the wrong gender also for this wine world. But I really loved what wine symbolized. You know, of course, any profession in which you can drink for a living sounded very appealing to a 19-year-old, but more so than that, it's, you know, combined all of these things I love, this sense of community, serving others, restaurants, uh, travel, history. And so when I became 21, I took my sommelier exam and became certified and also was working as a sommelier at a Michelin-starred restaurant here in New York. And I thought if I kept working in better places, that the environment would become better. But I just found that it seemed almost the fancier the restaurant, the more toxic the culture. And, you know, for a while I was writing just as my own sort of therapy to work through a lot of, you know, the sexism and misogyny I faced. 
And then after a while, I was like, I think that maybe this could be a book. And so there's a difference between writing for yourself and putting all of your, you know, embarrassing moments out there. But what really kind of inspired me to do so was that I became a, you know, a leader, a partner at uh, Coat and, you know, this restaurant. And I saw how many young women looked up to me for guidance and to, to be this sort of role model. And I realized that I was one of the few women in wine that was in a position to write this book. Because unfortunately, a lot of women in wine and restaurants still face a lot of pushback. And they don't have the luxury of writing a book like this because they need to get a job. So I figured if I didn't write it, who would? So it's not just my story. It's so many women's stories. And it's a narrative I think a lot of women, anyone who's ever worked in a restaurant or public service can definitely relate to. Wow. I just want to read one quote, which of course now I'm not going to be able to find, but it describes why... Well, okay, I can't find that quote. So let me let me start this again. Wait, hold on, it was so good. But it was essentially about why you found yourself as a sommelier because it combined sort of your mother and your father's backgrounds. That your mother came from a background, she was a countess and came from this very, you know, storied, traditional, you know, cream of the crop type family. And your father was more, came from poverty and that you felt like being a sommelier was like being a glorified servant. And so in that way, it married both of their experiences. So I just wanted you to comment on sort of that being the product of those two very different people. And of course, your book goes into what happens with both of your parents along the way. But I just wanted you to speak to that quote for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting because I think that, you know, a simile is essentially a highbrow service, servant, but it was my background of like blue collar meets blue blood combined. But <laughs> I think maybe that's the quote. That was the quote. That was it. <laughs> that gave me kind of empathy for both positions. And, you know, my grandmother on my mother's side was Contessa and she always kind of grew up telling me that one's social class does not define one's character. And I think that working in these fancy restaurants, a lot of people can become intimidated by all of these celebrities and politicians and kings and such that you wait on. And But that doesn't make them who they are. And so by having that, I think in my family, it gave me that background and that experience and also empathy. And, and then my father's mother was also fabulous. And she was a cotton picker in Tennessee. And, you know, she didn't even own a pair of shoes until she was 12. And, you know, but these two women, even though they came from such different backgrounds, were just really, you know, lovely people and by having a foot in both of their worlds, I think allowed me to be eventually a better sommelier. Wow. You write a lot about your mother in this book and, well, your father as well, but you write about her depression and the effects of having a mother who was basically non-functional and, and how that affected you and your siblings. And your mother said of those times, I'm going to quote, the depression had marched across my brain to the point that weep and sleep and weep and sleep was the way I spent my days alone in the bedroom behind closed doors. And then you as the child had to basically take care of yourself eating saltines and trying to feed your siblings. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was cer certainly not easy. This was like probably one of the, the first things I wrote. It was an evolution of a, a lot of short stories I had written as a child and old diary entries. And it was something I hadn't thought about for a while. I think whenever you go through any sort of trauma or painful experience, you, in order to survive, maybe don't think about it for quite some time. And so when I was writing this book, going to, you know, my storage unit and digging through these old diaries, it really brought up a lot of this 
pain that was so visceral and I felt so strongly as a child. But I think also it gave me a sort of resilience and, you know, mental illness is very difficult thing to see as a child. But again, I think it gave me, you know, a better perspective on the suffering and pain it can cause not only to the persons involved, like myself and my siblings, but also the person experiencing it. And my mom was extremely helpful with this book. And, you know, it wasn't easy for her to read. And a lot of parts were very difficult. But, you know, she really felt that it was very important to talk about these things and postpartum depression. And, you know, if we don't talk about these things as women, you know, they become something you should be ashamed of. And I don't think we should be. So it was actually a very healthy experience to work through, I think. Now, I noticed in your acknowledgments how you thanked her for providing so much source material for you and court documents. And I was thinking, wow, like, what would that have been like for your mom to have to go back and relive some of those, like the, the what she must have felt having to see what happened from a different vantage point. Anyway, yeah. just part of the intensity of the story. <laughs> Moving on, the scene when you, the, the scene, and I can't even like smile while we talk about it because this is such an upsetting, disturbing scene and the first of many upsetting, disturbing scenes that you write about so poignantly and beautifully and honestly about the sexual abuse and how he followed you home. And I don't know if you're even comfortable talking about this or if you do this in all your book things, just like opening, let him give you a ride home and then ends up raping you. And it's awful. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you at such a young age. Like, how do you feel even about talking about it? Like, have you made peace with this in some way? Or is this book sort of another way to do that? And then all the ones that followed, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I have to like hug this girl. I cannot believe what you've been through. Uh, yeah, I, it's uh, still not easy to talk about, but I think that, that, you know, again, unfortunately, these things are very common. One in three women in North America throughout their lifetime at some point is raped. I mean, that's just the reality. And unfortunately, I don't, I mean, it does get easier to talk about for me personally with writing these experiences, but it, I think is just really important that society does something about this. And, you know, especially in restaurants, we put our women in these positions where they are very vulnerable and we want them to be the cute cocktail waitresses or hosts, bartenders, sommeliers in my case, but we don't do anything to protect them. And it was really important to me that when I finally had a position of power and, and kind of my, my own place in a restaurant to, to do so. And, you know, this is one of the reasons at Coat that we established a zero tolerance policy for any sort of harassment or sexual assault from within the restaurant, colleagues, but also customers, because I think that's a big issue. And I was really sick of growing up in these restaurants, diners and fine dining places where the customer is always right. And the customer is not always right, especially when it comes to assault and harassment. And if we do not protect our women, they cannot build their careers in restaurants and in wine. And if we don't have a diversified industry, that means less innovation that can occur. That means less ideas, less growth. And the wine world is still an old boys club. And unless that changes soon and we don't have more women and you know minorities in positions of power, I just don't think it will be or continue to be safe honestly, and, you know, a place where a lot of innovation can occur. Well, it's amazing that you took your experience and turned it into something that can help so many other people. I mean, the book details some of the many situations in which people really took advantage of you and 
you know, locked cellars. And I mean, it was like one thing after another and you just got through it and you had so much just grit and resilience. And it's really an inspiring story that not only could you get through it and continue your upward trajectory professionally, that you chronicled it and now have written a beautiful book about it and started this nonprofit. I mean, what, what can you not do? This is like really impressive. How does it feel now to have this book out there? How did, like, how does it feel? Is there, it's really personal. Are you okay? How does it feel to have it out there? I mean, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because the book came out during this pandemic and in quarantine. So I don't think it really has really sunk in yet because I've gotten so many wonderful letters and, you know, have opportunities like this with Usabi where I can chat with people, but uh, you know, unfortunately, my book tour had to get canceled and things. So when you don't see people face to face, it just doesn't feel very real still. But, you know, the most important thing I wanted out of this book was I wanted women to not feel alone in any industry. And right after the book came out that very week, I received over now close to 600 emails from women all around the world saying, you know, this was your story, but I found it's so similar to my own narrative. And I really hope that together we can, you know, band together for social justice and actually change things. And so the fact that this book has brought so many women comfort is, was, was the whole point. And that is more important to me than anything else. So are you going to do something like a Facebook group or a, like, how are you going to keep this community together of all these emailing women? You need to start some sort of a collective express something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, Wine Empowered, our nonprofit is kind of what I'm really passionate about. And it bands together, not only women, but also minorities. And the reason for that being is that it's founded with two other female sommeliers who are both from China originally, and they felt also on the margins of the wine world. And so, you know, the community I want to create is one that's inclusive, where everyone feels heard and listened to. And so I think that's like my little group, but I always welcome whoever's watching uh, or anyone that, you know, wants to, please send me a message. And uh, when this is all over, we can do some events together. (laughs) I I didn't mean to imply that you should start an exclusive group. I hope that's not how you took that. Like, uh, okay, all right. (laughs) Yeah, you go start like a really, uh, you know, (laughs) Uh, anyway no wow well that's that's really impressive and also just going back to mental illness the experience you had with your older brother and how your father essentially sent him away and he had to get through that and how the mantra you keep repeating to yourself is just getting through it based on like how he internalized his own experience was also just so beyond powerful like what is your relationship with him like now yeah well Tim's amazing and he's an incredible human being. And I'm so grateful that I had him in my life and also my little sister, Lara, to get me through all these times because I couldn't have done it alone. Yeah, Tim's mantra was kind of, you know, what's two years, you can do anything for two years and kind of put your head down and get to a much better place far away. But, you know, and that was kind of my mantra that just, you know, get through it, just survive because so many survivors of trauma or difficult experiences, that's kind of all they have. But it wasn't until later that my brother said that wasn't his that wasn't his only realization. It was also that, you know, for better or for worse, you know, some part of him was lost when he was forced to go into the institution and the person that came out is not the same. So, you know, we do also have to accept the fact that these experiences change us. And, you know, 
kind of work on kind of embracing that change and, and channeling it for the good. I had that quote dog-eared too, and now I can't find any of my quotes, but I loved that quote that he said, that he's not, that, he, he, that some of you is left behind. And I feel like this is so true of so many traumas, like this harkens back to like the people and the, you know, the victims of the Holocaust and like just all these other situations where you get through it, but what form do you come out it in? What, what is lost and what is still there? And I don't know. I, I just found it, it's just like, Super, super powerful. So, yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> and that all of this stuff was going on in your own family, and then your ability to forgive, and and it's just amazing. <laughs> so now that this book is out there and you're surviving pandemic promotion, like, what do you? What's next for you? You have you're so young, and you've already done so much and made your way through it. I feel like you can do anything you want. So, like. What are some of your blue sky dreams or hopes, or are you just sort of getting through the next phase of life and seeing what happens? Well, you know, this, I'm sure for so many people watching as well, this quarantine has been great for a reflection. And so with the restaurant, we're opening a Miami property this fall and continuing to, you know, open up more coats, but also growing the nonprofit Wine Empowered and really empowering more women and minorities to kind of feel included in the hospitality world and help mentor them. Those are my two biggest goals right now. And then the third one right now, also during quarantine, I've been working on a lot is a third book, a novel. So that's, that's the next blue sky. Yeah, that's great. I know we're almost out of time, but do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I don't know. I think everyone's journey is so different and everyone writes differently. I think that you should write what makes you happy and what brings you joy. And for me, what brings me joy is writing something that will resonate with other people and empower them to, you know, take hold of their own lives. So yeah, write what makes, you know, what brings you joy. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for Wine Girl. Thank you for just opening up all your deepest, darkest secrets so that we can all feel your pain and be inspired to change the environments that created some of the things that caught, that were done to you in the past. So it's really important and such a good book and you're such a good writer. So I'm really excited for your novel and keep it up. Thank you, Zibby. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Today's episode has been sponsored by Violets Are Blue, the organic small batch skincare company that's giving back to women in treatment for breast cancer. Use code ZIPPY20 for 20% off violetsarebluskincare.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm-hmm.